Well, welcome to the Unstoppable Freedom Podcast. My name is Jimmy Page. I'm here with an incredible guest from the Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, who is on the front line, Tyson Langhofer. He's been a guest before. He's one of um, the few and the proud to be defending religious rights, freedom of speech, all of our constitutional protected rights, um, all the way to the Supreme Court in many cases. And um, without these guys, without ADF and without other organizations like them, we would have uh, we would have a much different culture and a much different outcome in America. So, Tyson, welcome back to the show. Appreciate you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Jimmy. You bet. Hey, we've got three specific cases that I wanted to update our audience with, three in particular, because they all relate to free speech, religious freedom, uh, the free expression of your political views, of your ideological views, your religious views, and many of them relate to our school environment. And that's what makes this so important, because the indoctrination, the change in what's allowed on our campuses from all the way from Elementary school through college is really changing the game. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about three cases in particular. I think the first one, if you're game on this, is Dijon versus Pembroke. Um, and this is one of those cases that is uh, at the collegiate level. And there's discrimination about viewpoints, about religious viewpoints and political viewpoints and, and how a school handles that. Tell us about that, because a lot of our audience has college-age kids and they need to know what's happening on their campuses. Sure. So Maggie DeYoung uh, was a in the Masters of Art Therapy program at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. It's a three year program and it's a you know, art therapy is a is a pretty niche type program. It's a small program uh, and there's not that many of these types of programs in the, in the country. And um, Maggie's a Christian a conservative um, and, you know, she went into the program, you know, really excited because she's an artist as well. And so she really her goal is to serve uh, to counsel child child trauma victims through art therapy. Um, and so that's that's her desire. So she gets into the program and realizes, you know, very quickly that she's in the minority uh, from a political viewpoint and, and a religious viewpoint. Um, but she wants to participate fully in the discussions. And so she begins, you know, uh, engaging in discussions um, you know, on, on, um, you know, race in, in, uh, the, as they come up in, in, uh, school, uh, in religion, um, on all the various issues that have come up, you know, in, since 2020 to, to now, a lot of contentious issues and begin expressing her yes. opinion. And, and, you know, she initially received quite a bit of blowback. Um, but, uh, you know, she continued doing it because she thinks it's important to be able to share, uh, these views. Uh, so, um, fast forward to the final semester of her three-year program. Uh, it's in February, and um, you know this. The each class is only about ten people. There's only a thirty total students and three professors, and in, in total in this program. So it's a small cohort of students. Um, and she receives out of the blue an email uh, from the Title IX coordinator with three no contact orders. And these are essentially restraining orders telling her that she cannot speak with three of the students in her program. She can't do it directly, indirectly, on campus or off campus, through social media or any other way. And if she does, she is subject to punishment. Now, the crazy thing about these orders is they contain nothing else. It was a one page order, didn't tell her what she did wrong. And in fact, it said, we're not saying you violated any policy. But what we are saying is any contact that you have with these students may be unwelcome. 
And because of that, we're telling you don't communicate with them. And if you do, you could be subject to suspension or expulsion. Now, again, she's in class with these students, two of them every day. And she worked with in the same counseling office, two of them every day. So she's now afraid. What can I do? Right. How do I participate Mm -hmm. fully in classes when I've got these no contact orders? Um, So we sent an email or I'm sorry, we sent a letter to them and said, look, you can't do this. This violates Maggie's rights um, of free speech and due process because she has no idea what what this is even about. Like why? Why all of a sudden now these two students who she's been in the program with for three years now, all of a sudden feel the need to say that I, I you know, you can't communicate with me. It's amazing. Eventually, never, never we, had um, any, we, never had any notice before. This was never, no one ever communicated to her that they were uncomfortable with some of the conversations. Which, by the way, I remember when college or university life was all about the the free exchange of ideas, not the singular absolutely. idea. You know, it was the marketplace of idea. It, it was where you went to kind of refine what you believe and why you believe it. And now here we go. We, we have this uh, people feeling uh, what they need a safe space. They needed safe space from her, evidently. Yeah, no doubt. And that that's one of the keys you pointed out there, Jimmy, is that none of the students had ever told her, I don't want to talk to you either at all or about this, this subject. This just came out of the blue. And, and in fact, she had had, uh, you know, pretty good relationships with a couple of these students. Uh, and so when we, we eventually got them to say, here's what the basis of the complaint was. And essentially it was, for about a year, one of the students had who was friends with her on social media, never tried to block her, had been taking snapshots of her social media and saying these are problematic. You know, uh, you know, it, intentionally what, looking at and reading her social media and then saying, I feel unsafe because I'm reading her social media. Right. Uh, and and then she, there were some text messages. And one of the text messages was from a student who reached out to Maggie after reading one of her social media posts and said, don't you think it's wrong to tell other people that their worldviews are wrong? Now, that's a little ironic, right? (laughs) (laughs) Don't you think it's wrong to tell other people that their worldviews are wrong, right? So Maggie responds and they engage in a two-day text message exchange about religion. And she said this, she said, my personal held beliefs are based in the objective truth of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. That's what she said. Now, weeks later, that exact quote ended up on an art project in the art therapy program that was called The Crushing Weight of Microaggressions. One of those you know, statements on there was her exact quote, that my object, my truth, my ob- truth is is it based in the objective truth of Jesus Christ. She didn't say you have to wow. base it in that. That's what she said. These are my beliefs, right? Yes. But yet this student was so offended by this conversation that she initiated about religious beliefs that she decided I'm going to put this on the this this art project of the crushing weight of microaggressions, and then I'm going to use it as the basis to get the court or the, the school to issue a a restraining order against you because I no longer want to hear your views about religion. It's absolutely stunning to me. I mean, as a, as a dad with someone at the university level, she goes to uh, Liberty university, which all of our kids have gone through Liberty, which is, is a, what I would consider a conservative Christian university, of course. So the exchange of ideas is free flowing, you know, and all, from all sides. But what concerns me about that the most is a couple things. One is 
that social media, right, the role that social media plays in this, and we tell our kids all the time, you have to be very, very careful how sad this is. You have to be very careful about what you post on social media, what you like on social media, what you share on social media, because it can and may be used against you. And that's exactly what's happened in this case. Yeah, it absolutely is, Jimmy. And, and, you know, one of the real problems is, again, this time period was the time period where, you know, during George Floyd and the, and the Capitol, uh, you know, riots and all of those different things that were going on. Right. And yeah. both sides are sharing their views on what's happening. The professors were very engaged on social media, sharing their views. The students were very engaged, sharing their views. And you have one person, Maggie, one person out of everybody else sharing their dissenting view. And yet this is so, you know, scary for them that they have to shut up that one person who says, hey, have you thought about this? And we, we you know, we're not trying to hide our social media. They're attached right. to the complaint. You can go read it. It's very, you know, this these views she shared were shared by millions and millions of people across the country. Very mainstream conservative Christian views. And yet um, she is being told. And in fact, in one of her reviews, the professor said, if I'm hearing about your social media posts, that's a problem. We need to take care of that. If I'm hearing about it, because other people are sharing these with me. Right. Yep. So now we have someone in authority who's taking us, who's picking a side, uh, which is tremendously unhealthy. And now they're in a position of power and authority. You know, so what's the takeaway? Let's wrap this. What's the takeaway for parents who have kids that are at the university level? What's the takeaway for them? What's the takeaway for our students who are on these campuses? Very similar to this, where this is very common and and, uh, likely to happen. What's the takeaway for them? How do we coach them? The takeaway is that uh, your rights to share your views are protected on college campuses. And just because you have a dissenting view doesn't mean you have less rights. So don't allow students, the mob, or university officials, uh, you know, censor you from engaging in these really important discussions. They don't have the right to tell you that you can't talk with another student um, because they disagree with your views. Now, obviously, if a student says, I don't want to talk to you about this anymore, then don't talk to him about it. That's fine. That's just, you know, common. If you don't want to engage with me, that's yes. fine. But t- having the government step in and say, we're going to be the arbiter here and we're going to tell you who you can and can't talk to, that's when it becomes dangerous and that's a problem. So don't, uh, the takeaway is don't allow Title IX offices to come in and tell your students or tell you as a student that you can't engage in these debates simply because other people disagree with them. I absolutely love that. That should embolden our listeners, right? Because I think there's a there's a spirit of fear kind of sweeping the country, you know, that you're afraid to say what you you're you're afraid to communicate your deeply held religious beliefs. You're afraid to enter into any discussions because you never know if someone's going to blow back. I love that encouragement. We want our kids to be strong and courageous. We want them to be um, we want them to be unafraid and I think we live in an era where they're going to have to be courageous. I just that's where we're at. No doubt. Okay, number two. That thank you for that. Number two is the parents versus Harrisonburg City Public School, uh, the board, right? And I think this has to do mostly with secret conversations, or um, you know, par- uh, I should say, conversations between teachers and students uh, that are kept from their parents. Tell us a little bit about this, because by the way, that idea of secret conversations 
between a teacher, an administrator, someone in the school system, and your kids. Uh, most parents don't believe this is happening. They don't believe that there are things that are not being communicated to them about the mental health of their children. Open our eyes a little bit on this one. Tell us what's happening there. So Harrisonburg has adopted a policy which essentially um, tells the teachers that if a student requests a new name or pronoun, you must immediately um, you know, honor that request, number one. Um, but number two, they've told them that essentially they, they tell the parents, I mean, the teachers that you are not allowed to communicate that information about your child's request to the parents unless the student affirmatively consents. All right. Mm. So um, essentially what they've done is they've, they've adopted a policy which says we're going to socially transition your child uh, from treating them if they're a boy, we're going to treat them as a girl in every respect. And if my if your child hasn't said that you can tell the parents, then when I call your you know son John uh, Jill at school and use she pronouns, when I communicate with you, I'm going to call him John and use he pronouns. So you will be completely kept out of the loop about what's happening at school and how your child has now taken on an entirely new persona, uh, which you're un unaware of. And so um, we're, we're challenging that policy because uh, as parents saying, look, we have the right to know about how our, what's happening at our, our, our school. Because if my son suddenly now believes he is a girl, that's important information. He's probably struggling with some things. I probably need to be aware of that so I can get him some counseling, so I can understand what's causing these, these problems. But you, as the primary caregiver, are now shut out of that conversation. They're essentially at the gate saying, parents are the problem. They're not part of the solution. They're the problem. And what's really scary about that, Jimmy, is almost every one of these schools are going to have a policy which say, hey, we love parents. We think parents are integral to their process. They're going to be part of the education process, right? They're part of this. And yet then they will adopt a policy which is completely contrary to that That's policy. Amazing. We are experiencing that all over the country, as you know. You've seen this in other states. This isn't the only case of this. Here in Colorado, uh, throughout, they'll say, oh, we're partners in education. Parents are a, are a key part of the education of their children, which, by the way, is a, a bit offensive to me because actually parents are the central player in the education of their kids and in the upbringing of their kids. We don't hand them over to the state when we, when we cross the threshold of their school door. And I think for me, this is happening over and over and over again. And most parents are in denial on this. They'll say, well, that couldn't be happening. I'm involved at my kid's school. That couldn't be happening to my child at, at my school. The truth is, it's very likely that it is happening, especially when they start talking in terms of, oh, parents are a valuable part of this, but you have your place and we have limits and we are allowing secret conversations behind the scenes. And then you get some, you get insight into some of that communication about what's happening behind the scenes and your eyes are opened. Yeah. So Jimmy, I'm from, I'm from Kansas and uh, we, we recently had a victory in Kansas on this very issue in rural Kansas. Uh, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, a very conservative um, county in Kansas, but they had adopted a policy which required teachers to lie to parents um, about this information. And, and the, the uh, fortunately we, we obtained an injunction. The court entered an injunction saying that's an unconstitutional policy. 
And it specifically said that parents have the right to know and to play a part in, um, you know, what what their child is being called at, at schools. Um, and, you know, what's really scary, Jimmy, is you would think that that parents would be able to go to the policies and look and see whether they actually have a policy on this. But many schools aren't adopting an, an affirmative policy which lays this out. They just interpret their non-discrimination policy in such a way that they say, well, this would require us to do this. And so we're going to punish anybody under that, even though it doesn't say anything about pronouns, anything about names, anything about communicating with parents but they interpret it in such a manner that automatically excludes parents from this important decision. Okay, and that is one of the most disturbing parts of this whole equation, right? And we're gonna talk a little bit about critical race theory in a moment. Uh, what's most disturbing about this is the schools are now, what I would consider conspiring or whatever, working behind the scenes to make sure that the language of what is presented to parents, either on the websites or in person at school board meetings, is very, uh, you know, it's amenable. It's like, oh, it, we're on the same page. You th you leave these meetings and you leave reading things on the website and you think you're on the same page, you think you're safe, but what is really going on in practice is much different than what they'll even reveal on their websites. Yeah, let me give you an example, Jimmy. In the, in the, the Junction City case I was talking about in Kansas, here's what happened. Our, our client was punished without any official policy at all. She was punished for, for uh, using the last name of a student, the, last, the official last name of the student rather than their preferred name. She was punished without any policy. She then proposes to the school to adopt an, a good policy. And the, and the school, after this happened, actually adopted a, a decent policy, which said, one, if a, parent, if a student asks for that, uh, you must go to the to the administration. The administration will talk to the student. The administration will talk to the parents, and then we'll communicate to everybody what the plan is. That was the initial policy. But over the summer, the school board doesn't adopt that policy. They adopt a one sentence policy that says simply that USD four seven five employees will use the preferred name and pronoun of a student. Period. That's it. And then they send out an email not in a policy that says, hey, um, um, we're not going to tell parents. So it's not in the official policy. It's in an email, right? So they take what was a very clear policy. They reject that. They adopt one sentence, which doesn't even tell anybody what's going on. And they do this because they, are, they know that people are going to object to a policy which intentionally excludes parents from the process. They're intentionally obfuscating this information and making it difficult. Those are our public school boards. That's what they're doing, even in very conservative rural areas like Kansas. Yeah, it, that that needs everyone needs to hear that because I think that's what we're coaching teachers on. By the way, there's millions and millions of amazing teachers who are absolutely in favor of parental rights in the classroom, and they see themselves as partners who are there to uh, reinforce the educational process and the values of the family. They see themselves as partners. So we're thankful for those teachers. What we're doing, we've seen, is teachers have a high level of fear about speaking out about any of this. If they're against any of these policies, they're afraid to speak out. So what we've done is we're encouraging teachers to take screenshots of emails, forward emails from their school districts to reveal this deceitful communication behind the scenes. And we're getting tons and tons of people that are expressing what's really happening behind the scenes. 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You, you can imagine, you know, how many teachers are out there that are on a single income. Their whole family yes. depends upon this and they feel like they have no choice. I have to go along with this. I've been in this district for 18 years. I'm two years away from full retirement, whatever it is. You know, they're put in this yes. uh, untenable position where they feel like they're, they have to lie to st- students and parents yes. or keep their job. That's, yes. And that's, that's, a, that's a horrible position that our boards are putting their, the, these teachers in. It really is. And these are elected officials that are supposed to be representing us. Uh, okay. Case number. Oh, well, I guess the takeaway here, what's in the end, what's the takeaway here with these secret conversations? What's the role of the parent? How vigilant do they need to be on that topic? Yeah. If I was a parent in it and it had students in a public school, I would, I would affirmatively email every one of my teachers and I would say, I want to know what name my child is being referred to at all times and pronoun. And if they ask for anything uh, different than what their legal name and pronoun is, I want to be immediately told about that. And I, and I want I to that. know what the policy is on it. They need to affirmatively ask that and get an answer back. Don't let them skirt the issue because I guarantee you they've discussed this issue. Every public school yes. is discussing this issue. They do have a stance on it and you need to know what that is. Yeah, it's fantastic. We are we are coaching our parents to uh, send a do not consent uh, email or letter, a notice that we do not consent to changing the pronouns of our ch- children. We do not consent to secret conversations, and on and on it goes, because then it, it um, we're putting them on notice to say we don't agree with these things, and we want to be informed if these things are happening. That's excellent. Okay, case number three is uh, parents versus Albemarle uh, County in Virginia, another case in Virginia. This one deals with mostly with race, right? This is the critical race theory. This is that we have adopted elements of the critical race theory in many of our schools. I was going to say most, if not most schools have it, whether it's explicit or it's beneath the scenes. Tell us a little bit about that case and why this matters to parents. Well, you know, uh, what, what Albemarle has done is they started a, a pilot project for seventh and eighth graders in one of the middle schools. And this pilot project, you know, essentially was going to, uh, you know, it, it, it they, the board said that this is the initial project and this type of curriculum is going to be rolled out throughout the entire district for every grade level, throughout every curriculum. So there is no way to opt out. They said it will not, there's no opt out because it's going to be incorporated throughout. And essentially, you know, what it did was, you know, it, it, it does what most of these critical theory um, uh, curriculums does. It teaches that American ideals such as equal treatment under the law, honesty, hard work, bravery, innovation, individual responsibility, and, and good character. Those are buzzwords, you know, merely to serve to enable and sustain oppression. And they begin, you know, essentially, um, you know, putting uh, these different characteristics on students based upon their race. And so, you know, so they're different stories. So one Latina student uh, whose whose parents immigrated from another country, an oppressive country to here, they're both dentists and they both do very well for themselves. But she was told that students of color don't live in big houses. Now, that was not that was contrary to her experience because she did live in a big house and she was saying, well, I, I don't understand. That's not true. I, I, I you know, and, and, and mm-hmm. one biracial student was was uncomfortable because he was being told that his race was the most important part of him. And, and there's a really sad story about that, Jimmy, where this was a student who had been in the, the school district the entire time, had had a phenomenal um, 
experience so far. But he came home and he kept telling his mom, he kept talking about how, um, you know, race uh, was so important. And, and one day he came home so excited. And he said, mom, there's, there's six other black students now in the school. And, and he said, I'm no longer alone. Mm. And she said, you, you've been in this school for seven years. Uh, did you feel alone before? And, yeah. and she, and, and he basically, you know, he said, well, well, no, but, but now I'm not alone. And, and so, you know, that just broke her heart because she was, you know, she said this was never an issue until they began teaching this. Um, and so they began focusing on, on all of these different characteristics and they began dividing the students based upon characteristics and lumping them in these batches, telling them that that's yes. the most important thing about them are these are your characteristics. And, and that's yes. wrong. Uh, it's divisive um, and, and it's, it's a violation of the Constitution and of Title VI that says that you cannot discriminate against students based upon their race. Mm. It's amazing to me because we're hearing stories where they are physically separating students based upon external characteristics. So if they're separating their kids around race, they're separating them around gender or gender identification, they're separating them into all of these different buckets, and then they're telling them how they should feel. They're telling them these characteristics. This is who you are. You're either a victim or you're oppressed. And, you know, I, the thing you mentioned is this biracial family, right? I have, we have biracial families within, within our group. And I can just imagine a kid coming home being told that his mom, his white mom is an oppressor and his black dad is, is a victim. And them, both professionals, by the way, wildly successful, have to be wondering what on earth are we teaching in our schools? But this is happening every day, isn't it? It absolutely is. And what, what, Again, schools are being very duplicitous in how they're doing this. So in Loudoun County, uh, in Loudoun County, where we've got litigation going on and other policies, what they've done there is they haven't rolled it out in the curriculum, but they've done it through teacher training. And they've told the teachers, we expect you to implement this throughout your curriculum. So they can say, you know, uh, you know, I guess, honestly, they'll say, well, it's not in the curriculum. You know, but we know what they're doing. They're they're indoctrinating the teachers and they're telling the teachers you must implement this in at, throughout every aspect of your teaching. And so it is happening. Even if you don't see it in the curriculum, you need to go look and you need to ask teachers, what are they being trained on? Because I can almost guarantee you uh, that there is some aspect of this anti-racism, critical race theory that's being implemented uh, in your school district. It is very pervasive. Yes. And, you know, what's really yes. scary, Jimmy, is we had a hearing we had a hearing on this on this case, a motion to dismiss, um, uh, about a month ago, and I was in the courtroom. And the judge said, "I've read every one of your allegations, and I don't see a single problem with one of them." And 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 here was one of the first questions. Here's one of the first questions he asked uh, our attorney that argued this. He said, "Counsel, have you ever been the only white person in a sea of black people?" And or, you know, he said, well, well, your honor, he's like, no, I want you to answer the question. And so that that's what defined the entire rest of this argument. And when he pointed out one of the most problematic portions of this curriculum was it said it had this slide and it shows that white people communicate intellectually and black people communicate emotionally. That's what the slide says. That's what they're teaching. And the judge says, I don't see a problem with that. And so essentially, the, this, 
you know, these, this stereotyping of individuals based upon their racial characteristics, we're going to say, by definition, you communicate in this fashion because of your race. You have, you know, judges who say, I don't see a problem with that. This stereotyping that we have tried to eradicate from the law is now becoming official curriculum in our public schools. It's amazing. And this very ideology, this whole concept would have been uh, exactly rejected during the civil rights movement. This idea of defining someone by a group and by certain characteristics like that would have been would have been an abomination. No one would have put up with that. And yet now it's being taught. The thing that you mentioned that bothers me the most, and we've experienced it here in Colorado and many other states, is the teacher training. That although on the face of it, by the way, I've reviewed the entire curriculum for our school district, looking for through the lens of, hey, where is critical race theory in the curriculum? And by the way, it's everywhere. Now they don't say those words, but it is absolutely everywhere. But the worst part of it is, when they have these tra- teacher trainings behind the scene, they put pressure on their teachers to run this play in every classroom. It's happening whether or not the curriculum shows it or not. And that's what's really scary. Absolutely. No doubt about it. And, you know, what's what's again, what's really problematic with these with with critical race theory in general is in the past, the civil rights movements, what they would do is they they fought against racism by identifying specific rules, laws, policies, and actions which targeted individuals because of their race. Now, because those are not, you don't have those anymore. There aren't those. In fact, you have protections against that type of actions. They just say it's systemic. It's systemic. We can't point to any one thing. And if you disagree with that premise, you are by definition racist. So they are essentially they taking away the ability you have to debate the issue because if you debate it, you are inherently racist and 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 you're essentially being labeled that way. They don't have to identify any specific policy. They just have to say it's everywhere. And because it's everywhere, therefore, uh, we must have this training. And if you don't agree, you're racist. You're racist. So what's the takeaway for parents on this? What do we do? Because we know these things are happening. A lot of well-intentioned parents are approaching the school boards with this information. The school boards are, of course, saying, oh, of course we don't teach critical race theory, blah, blah, blah. But we know it's being taught and it's, it's being uh, in, interwoven into all aspects of the curriculum. What does a parent do today to get to the bottom of it? How do we expose this? Well, I think one is, is to uh, you know, do what you've been doing, reviewing curriculum, asking about teacher trainings and trying to figure out exactly what they are teaching. So be very involved, go volunteer at your schools, you know, get involved with PTAs, go to school board meetings and, and, and find out what's going on. Second, if you find out that they're teaching these divisive racist policies, um, uh, then, then get involved, run for school board, bring it to the public. Don't allow them to shame you and to stop talking about these policies because they are going to divide and destroy our country. That's the aim. Their aim is to destroy our institutions. That's the aim of critical theory. Um, It's not to reform. It's not to address racism. It's to upend it and to put in place a new uh, ruling orthodoxy. And and we can't allow it. And we need to look at our children in the eye when, you know, 30 years down the road and say, we were there, we were fighting these types of policies, regardless of whether we win or lose. We at least were there. We showed up and we fought and hopefully we win. And we think we can win because the law is still on our side. The scary thing is there's a lot of bad policies out there. The good thing is we can win when we fight. 
Yes. Well, and that's why I wanted you on the show to talk through these these cases in particular. They all pertain to our parents at all levels of education today. Thank you for what Tyson. I'm so grateful for you for our partnership for what you're doing with ADF. Uh, grateful for you. We'll be praying for your success on all of these topics, and we'll keep our folks informed. Thanks for being back on the show. Appreciate you, brother. Yeah, thanks so much, Jimmy.